Bear. Uh, I am Mike Lewandowski. For the very last time, I will leave you with a good night and a go blue. You are listening to your home for Michigan Athletics. 88.3 WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Locate us on the web at WCBN.org. 15 seconds remain. Hunwick has it. Forward to Tambellini. Tambellini, he'll shoot. Save there, and the rebound comes to Hunwick. Six seconds remain. Tambellini shoots and scores. It comes around to Jeff Tambellini at the near side circle with 5.3 seconds remaining. Tambellini gives the Wolverines a 6-5 lead. Stay tuned for Gray Matters. place to tap on his phone at the DNC. While it took little imagination to make sense of the plumber's tap on Larry O'Brien's phone, besides his trucking general uh, policy of uh, political intelligence, he was
wedding of Howard Hughes's complicated internal affairs and their relationship to Nixon. No one could figure out why Hunt and the Cubans would want to bug Spencer Oliver. Specter, who was a minor character in this book, however, knew why. He had naively alerted Egil Crow to his allegations and then laid them on the line to Oliver at the DNC. One of the purposes of the Watergate burglary was to learn what, if anything, the Democrats intended to do about Paul Lewis Weiler's connection to Richard Nixon and Specter's charges of narcotic smuggling. Then goes on to detail some of these amazing charges and the links to Robert Vesco. Robert Vesco is mentioned in the Watergate uh, tapes at certain points, and it seems that Robert Vesco had given Nixon some rather large sums of cash that uh, might have been hanging around in a safe. At one point, when John Dean talks about the fact that E. Howard Hunt is blackmailing the White House and that this is part of the cancer in the presidency... Mm -hmm. <clears throat> a cancer that's growing and spreading geometrically, as he put it in the March 21st conversation. It's uh, this whole connection with Oliver and these interesting characters. The blunders by the burglars, whether purpose, and I'm quoting from Haugen now, were made purposely, perhaps at the instigation of Nixon loyalists, and the plumbers at the White House is uncertain. Failing to consider the possibilities, however, would be naive. There's just too much there. The plumbers tap on Spencer Oliver's phone following Specter's conversations with Crow and Oliver. The countermeasure sweep of Vesco's office, offices by federal narcotics agents. DEA missing reports and inactivity on the case. The relationship between Vesco and Nixon and Weiler and Nixon. Lucian Conan's alleged creation of a CIA DEA assassination squad which shared space house with Mitch Verbell himself a uh, prospective partner of Vesco and the deliberate destruction by the DEA of Frank Peroff's cover after he reported Bouchard's assertion that Vesco and LeBlanc were behind three-cornered heroin transaction involving Marseille, Montreal, and San Jose. Now, Vesco at the time was a fugitive from justice, supposedly. He was looking to find a tax haven somewhere in the Caribbean and had been shopping his uh, proposal of sort of a bank offshore that could move uh, drug money, um, and he attempted Paraguay. I think he vi paid a visit to Francisco Franco, and went to see um, baby Doc Duvalier at one point. He ended up, of course, being a fugitive from justice. But it's quite clear that there were some connections between Robert Vesco and Richard Allen, who, of course, is a very famous spook who uh, later became Ronald Reagan's national security advisor. Uh, Hogan writes that Allen, a Notre Dame gra a graduate with seven children, uh, was a veteran of the Hoover Institute on War, Peace, and Revolution, as well as the G Georgetown Institute for Strategic Studies and an early supporter of Nixon. Strangely, he was also the target of a 1968 CIA investigation 
that has proved mysterious on several counts. He goes into this, and Allen became a member of the NSC. However, his, quote, ardor for the Cold War attracted Henry Kissinger's ire, and after nine months of presiding over the same intelligence community that had earlier investigated him, Allen resigned. He then returned to politics. In June of 71, the same month in which John Dean began to see receive CIA reports about IOS, Allen was appointed to a White House commission on East-West trade. A conservative theoretician, he brought an unusual combination of White House expertise to the White House as a former NSC member, and he had a stratospheric Q clearance that made him privy to the inner workings of the State Department and the White House. And what's interesting is that he apparently becomes connected to Vesco in this plan to create an offshore tax-free haven for banking and moving drug money that uh, remains a bit mysterious. It's sort of connected to some strange campaign contributions that Nixon um, clearly had. He clearly had cash from uh, both B.B. Rebozo and Howard Hughes. Of course, Howard Hughes gave money to both parties, yeah. so as, as many tycoons do to hedge their bets. And Hughes had become obsessed personally with nuclear testing in the 60s. So he was giving, he was calling Lyndon Johnson quite often to stop the nuclear testing because he, at that point, had decided he wanted to reside in Las Vegas full time, yeah. somewhere on some top floor, or one of those ghastly casino hotels. I think it might have been the Sands, but don't quote me on that one. So it's uh, just fascinating um, how um, Richard Allen apparently interceded with Vesco and that um, there was a very loose connection between uh, Robert Vesco, who, by the way, I think grew up in Detroit hmm. at one point. Uh, he died a fugitive from justice, but... Uh, it was this uh, fascinating uh, offshore bank sort of empire, private empire, that um, Vesco and Allen had sort of planned on. Um, by the way, Baby Doc, just for the record, turned him down. Haugen notes that uh, the Duvaliers had been raking in an estimated $16 million per year for the past 20 years, the money deriving from unreported tax on tobacco products. And, of course, baby Doc Duvalier eventually had to flee Haiti. With suit suitcases uh, stuffed full of cash. And he were retired where? The French Riviera. Yeah. So these very interesting... Uh, connections between this utopian scheme concocted by Michael Oliver, Richard Allen, Robert Vesco, um, is, is rather remarkable stuff and uh, may give one a, a sort of intuitive sense of what the burglars were after or what they were worried about. Because uh, at this point, it's quite obvious, back in in June of uh, 1972, that Nixon was pretty much going to win in a 
easy landslide reelection. Well, the hope was, however, that, yeah. the, the, the the burglaries had been going on for several months before that. Oh, I mean, they just got caught on this one. Yeah, but the, yeah, exactly. There were there were a number of unsolved burglaries in the Washington area that were that were even ongoing while Hoover was alive. Because let's remember that good old J. Edgar Hoover officially died on May 2nd, 1972. Most of the reports say May 1st of 1972, but they couldn't let it be known that that was May Day, May Day. <laughs> the communist celebration. Oh, the communists will be <laughs> dancing for joy knowing that Hoover's dead. And, of course, uh, Hoover's uh, personal and confidential files were destroyed by his alert secretary before anybody from the Justice Department could get a hold of them. These allegedly were very, very juicy blackmail files on all kinds of politicians and included an ongoing, continuing file on the Alger Hiss case for reasons that remain unexplained. Who knows? Well, that's the other thing about Nixon is that Nothing from the past stays buried in the past. They all sort of resurface, whether it's the Bay of Pigs or the Alger Hiss case or his fixation on the Kennedys. Um, it's always uh, sort of in the murky mix. Um, and when Allen left the NSC, he, he like I said, he joined this east-west uh, sort of informal uh, as a... Um, Haugen puts it, a fourth world buffer. says, one of the first countries, and I'm quoting here from Haugen, Allen approached after leaving the White House for a second time was Romania. And surprisingly, the commissars proved enthusiastic. The idea of a corporate principality, a sort of fourth world buffer to mediate financial transactions between the East and West appealed to them. It's well known historically that Nixon was close to Nikolai Ceausescu for reasons that remain unexplained. Perhaps even money was being funneled in from Romania. I mean, it's well established that there was money coming from the Greek military. Mm, oh, yeah, that comes up over and over. This is why Agnew was put on the ticket. Yeah. <laughs> well, that and, you know, impeachment insurance. <laughs> impeachment insurance, yeah. Which, uh, of course, didn't work because... They went after Agnew first. He was forced to resign on the 10th of October, 1973, to be replaced by a congressman from the Grand Rapids area named Gerald R. Ford. That's right. Well, uh, all through the 80s, the uh, you know uh, now lamented uh, quarterly magazine, uh, Covert Action Quarterly, or Covert Action Information Bulletin, as it was originally called, uh, wrote uh, extensively about the connections between uh, Reagan administration uh, appointees and these sort of fringe uh, fascist uh, figures from Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. And by the way, this this character, Weiler, just to familiarize yourself a little bit with him, he gave allegedly a $2 million donation to the Nixon campaign and that the two men had dined together in New York's plush Cote Basque, not itself a crime, but evidence of their relationship. In addition, Nixon's campaign headquarters had been located in the Hotel Pierre, believed to be owned by Weiler. If Specter was right about the French industrialist, the president of the United States owed a substantial debt to one of the most important financiers of heroin. 
Now, well, Nixon would yeah. want to keep all that stuff secret. And he certainly would want to know if um, Larry O'Brien or Michael Oliver knew anything about it. But uh, there is some very strange stuff because Egil Crow has always been a very interesting, uninvestigated figure in the Watergate scandal. He was allegedly the organizer of the plumbers. Right. And he eventually, during the as the Watergate scandal was unfolding, he changed his plea. He said, quote, in good conscience, I cannot invoke national security, so I'm pleading guilty. Uh, I, and I'm pretty sure he pled guilty to obstruction of justice. But the other fascinating thing about Egil Crow was he was named to the um, Air Traffic Controller National Transportation Investigation Committee shortly after E. Howard Hunt's wife died in a plane crash in December of 1972. Nixon had been reelected. Watergate was not yet a problem. But clearly at that point, Hunt was blackmailing Nixon. Mm -hmm. And in the Yankee and Cowboy War, the famous Carl Oglesby book, just fascinating to realize that Crow was immediately put onto this committee investigating this air crash. This was an air crash, by the way, that occurred in Chicago in December of 72, in which uh, Dorothy Hunt's uh, luggage was it was found $15,000 of cash with a thank you note. It said, thank you, FS, which allegedly stood for Frank Sturgis. Um, Hunt was collecting money for all the Cuban burglars. He had recruited them. Mm -hmm. Several of them were veterans of the Bay of Pigs, and they seemed to be a kind of little private <laughs> operation that Hunt could turn to from time to time. Very fascinating stuff. But Nixon's uh, immediate appointment of Egil Crow to this uh, transportation committee investigating this air crash has uh, led to some speculation that this crash might not have been accidental. Not everybody died on the crash, by the way. It was one of those skidding on the runway things that killed something like 40 people. I don't have the Oglesby notes with me at the moment, but amazing stuff. And, of course, this might be why uh, Hunt began to escalate his demands. <laughs> he might have thought, wait a minute, the White House killed my wife. <laughs> Something's odd here. Time to up the ante. Now, Gordon Liddy was always willing to fall on his sword. And they talk about in the transcripts how much they admire him for so yeah. so doing. Yeah. yeah but they, this Hunt guy, he, he knows too much. He knows too damn much. <laughs> Does Gore Vidal call him the uh, master forger of state papers? Well, he was the master forger of state papers. This is one of those other fascinating mysteries of, of Watergate. Now, I've... I'm, Pretty sure that Egil Crow, Jeb Magruder, and John Dean are all still alive. So it'll be fascinating to find out if there are f memoir finales from these these characters because they all played very very important roles in the Watergate scandal. Um, Dean certainly, because of his personal conversations with Nixon on on so many instances, mm. would would know probably even more than he. Is admitted to, but it's fascinating to note that uh, 
E. Howard Hunt's safe was cleared out following his arrest. This, of course, was the initial linkage to the White House. Bob Woodward, who was basically working the police beat, got a tip from one of the uh, lawyers, I think it might have been Hunt's lawyer, that these guys were going to be arraigned on Saturday. They, they were caught, they were arrested Friday night, probably Saturday morning, whatever. So he was there for the arraignment. And then he realized, wait a minute, these guys are wearing $300 suits. These are not burglars. These are not cat burglars. These guys are better dressed than Cary Grant and to catch a thief. <laughs> So this immediately became the linkage that Woodward began reporting on the White House is connected to this because uh, Hunt and Liddy worked for the committee to reelect the president. While taken out of E. Howard Hunt's safe was a revolver <laughs> and a file, several files apparently, that were deliberately destroyed by L. Patrick Gray, apparently in the presence of John Dean. John Dean has called the file political dynamite, quote-unquote. He's never revealed what was in the file. But amongst the documents that it was later proven that Hunt did work on were forgeries, something that Nixon would know all about. They were forgeries of State Department cables that... Um, implicated John F. Kennedy in the assassination of Diem. Now, it is well known that John F. Kennedy did not authorize an assassination. He did authorize a coup. And Kennedy, when told of the death of, of the DM brothers, was shocked as, as people who said they looked at him and couldn't believe it because he was given assurances that they would be ferried out of the country probably to a, a safe haven like Costa Rica or Haiti. <laughs> <laughs> or where did Imelda Marcos end up? Hawaii? I think so, yeah. So, somewhere like that. But anyway, uh, the, these, these forged State Department cables are fascinating because uh, defenders of Hiss would argue that that's what they did in that case. They forged cables. Well, and in the Rosenberg case, too, the FBI, you know, Faked evidence. Yeah, uh, it was something they did. Whether it came down to manipulating a typewriter, or uh, in the bizarre case of the Rosenbergs, a little device made out of a Jello box, a little packaged cardboard box of Jello brand gelatin, became a crucial turning point in the evidence. And of course, forged papers of you know go way back in American history to uh, you know World War Two. The British intelligence for faked a lot of documents to convince Roosevelt uh, about uh, German. Um, uh, oh, the Zimmerman Telegraph. The Zimmerman so Telegram yeah. from World War One. Yeah. Uh, it's it, it's nothing new. Uh, it's been used over. I mean, the Dreyfus uh, documents are, have now been proven to be forgeries mm -hmm. uh, in uh, the famous French. Military uh, military spy case yep. that involved a, a heavy amount of anti-Semitism and part of that whole era at the turn of the century uh, between the uh, 19th and 20th century, the protocols of the elders of Zion, <laughs> um, everything. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's nothing new and, of course, is easily done to people that want to be duped or not look at other 
conflicting information that may contradict this. The interesting thing about the Zimmerman telegram, so I think is what they officially call it, that was a bizarre plot in which the Germans would get Mexico to join the war in exchange right. for them reacquiring parts of Southwest America. It's almost too bad it didn't happen. <laughs> But the uh, the funny thing was about that was the uh, the State Department at the time during World War One went and confronted this guy Zimmerman and he admitted <laughs> it's true. He didn't deny it. He said it's true. <laughs> so this was yet a further uh, one of the further contributors to the <laughs> fact that the United States eventually entered these on the side of the Allies in World War One. The other thing was just simply economics. By 1917, we had we had loaned the French and uh, uh, British about 250 million dollars, and I think our trade with Germany was down to like four million. <laughs> so yeah, if we wanted that money back, uh, we needed those guys to win. There was a there was a big disparity there on the uh, in who owed us money at the end of the war. So, yeah, this, this fascinating connection between Vesco and, and these um, narcotics dealers is just amazing stuff. Um, well, you figure it has to be something uh, to make, I mean, Nixon's paranoid, he's uh, insecure, uh, even when he had the election locked up. So he, he knew that facts were out there floating around. And uh, you can only wonder what exactly it was that drove him to uh, allow these things to be done in his name. And he spends the whole, virtually the entirety of his uh, second shortened administration uh, trying to put out this fire. Yeah, and it, it was a fire that just kept going. I think that some of the meetings with Kissinger are, are just fascinating because they both sort of reassure each other that they don't know much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know much. Mr. President, I know nothing. <laughs> okay, Sergeant Schultz, you know right. nothing. <laughs> well, of course, those two guys saw themselves as, uh, you know, oh, this is just a, sort of a sideshow, a circus thing on the side. It's Nixon didn't really care that much about domestic politics anyway. No. Uh, he saw himself as uh, uh, a big, big wheel on the international scene. You know, he wanted to be like Churchill and sure. like Roosevelt, a world shaper. And, of course, he's repeatedly in conversations with aides telling them he he doesn't think this is playing out in Peoria, as they say, that the ordinary people don't care about Watergate. And, you know, he, he really, it's amazing how he deludes himself repeatedly, mm -hmm. that he thinks that it's just a matter of public relations. And this famous uh, national address that he issues on the 29th of April um, is fashionable. They're just famous self-delusion. You know, he, he really, I've come clean. Here's now, the tapes. Here are the transcripts. Just let's move on to important things. Yeah, they, they show that I'm innocent. And, of course, you know, by this point, the, the, more and more of the all the president's men are going to jail um, or are in trials. There's more and more discovery going on in these trials. And... It almost reminds me a little bit of uh, Nick's uh, of the good, the bad, and the ugly. You know, the final scene when Eli Wallach is up on the cross with the noose around his neck and he's wobbling. Bags of gold at his feet. <laughs> Bags of gold at his feet and he's wobbling around. Yeah. And you can just sense that the noose is about to tighten, but 
Blondie uh, spares him and shoots him shoots him down one more time. Yep. But it's Nixon up on that cross with his feet wobbling around. <laughs> it's it's almost where Nixon was on April 29th of 1974. It really, uh, when you think about it in retrospect, and yet he's still holding on to this 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 kind of vain hope that he can that he can hang on and it's interesting that on the on the 4th of November um time magazine let's see time magazine the new york times and the detroit news publicly called for richard nixon's resignation yeah. this is um november 4th of 73 all with republican outlooks and, on their uh, editorial pages. Yeah, and in the in the in the chronology, it says Edward Brooke publicly calls for President Nixon's resignation, the first Republican senator to do so. In its first editorial in fifty years, Time Magazine calls for Mister Nixon's resignation. So that you know, that's where I am, and this is you know, this is months. Months and months before all these other events had happened. Of course, the Saturday Night Massacre had already happened, and that was one of the key seminal events of the Watergate scandal. Because simply put, at that point, the public perception of Nixon radically changed. Uh, it was quite clear he was covering something up. <laughs> now, what it was, we still don't know. Well, you exactly. know, what he, what he should have done was reach down into his wallet, because as I read here from the Reader's Digest, great biographies in large type. That's great. Of Richard Nixon <laughs> that uh, a friend of mine gave me some years back. This is by Jonathan Aitken. Uh, includes this touching excerpt. Uh, when Nixon had taken the oath of office in January 20th, 1953, of vice president, his mother gave him a small handwritten note. And this is what Hannah Nixon wrote. To Richard, you have gone far, and we are proud of you always. I know that you will keep your relationship with your maker as it should be. For after all, that, as you must know, is the most important thing in this life. With love, mother. And then it says, Nixon kept the letter in his wallet. And if you think about what happens to a document that you fold up and put into your wallet as the years go by, of course... The heat, the pressure, it gets ruined. It gets shredded and tattered. And I think that's what happened to Richard's sense of who he was. Yeah. What he was supposed to be in his maker's eyes. Uh, tattered. And uh, as you rightly point out, a number of personality defects, uh, psychological stumbling blocks that made this very smart man... Um, into a very stupid criminal. Yeah, and and I still say, you know, the the famous uh, line from the, all the president's men: "Follow the money." Well, it it is about the money, and of course, we've had a recent uh, Supreme Court r ruling called McCutcheon that's simply more of the same, and it's terrible. It's it's fascinating to read in the book Spooks that this is the plan Allen, Richard Allen had uh, shared with Robert Vesco. He says it's a, a plan enamored to establish an international financial district, a commercial enclave within a, quote, specialized fiscal regime w would prevail. 
Unlike Michael Oliver's utopian scheme, Allen's plan excluded the participation of individuals as such. Only corporations would be permitted to take advantage of the district's hermetic banking provisions, its tax vacuum, its trade allowances. Ruling the district would be a presidium composed entirely of multinational corporations, banks, brokerages, and insurance companies. What the plan amounted to then was the centralization of the world's offshore tax havens in a single place, a financial mecca where business transactions would 